The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew in the 11th chapter and the 28th verse. The 28th verse in the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now this statement comes in a chapter which, as you noticed at the beginning in the reading, a chapter which deals with quite a, a series of people who for various reasons either did not come to the Lord Jesus Christ or found it difficult to do so. We have these cases of the cities of the plain dealt with, Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida. And our Lord deals also with the, the people and their attitude towards him and their attitude towards John the Baptist. So the great theme of this chapter is some of these various reasons and causes which stand between people and coming to and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoying those gracious benefits and blessings that he has to give. And you notice that in giving us this description, the principle that is taught us in a sense is this, that whereas men and women from time to time abuse differing and different reasons for not believing, the fact of the matter is that finally they're all in the same position. They all are unbelievers. And they all reject this gracious invitation that is given to them. Now, the whole history of the world, in a sense, is just summarized by that. That is, in a sense, the great message of the Old Testament. Certainly the message, the entire message of the New Testament. And it has been true of the world ever since the end of the New Testament era and even down until this very night. And to me there is nothing which is more interesting, merely from the standpoint of intellect and of the study of human nature, than to notice the way in which at different times, in different eras and epochs, mankind has brought forward differing reasons and different reasons for this rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. As I say, ultimately, of course, it all leads to exactly the same thing. But what is interesting is, is to notice the different reason that is given in different centuries or in different portions of centuries, in different countries, in different cultures, different backgrounds. I see it all depicted so clearly here in this 11th chapter. You remember how our Lord put it. He, as it were, turned to the people and said, Dear me, how contradictory you are. You're contradictory in your reasons, but you're consistent in your refusal. Here, he says, for instance, is the position. John the Baptist came, and he was one of those ascetic-looking persons. He didn't live in the towns. He spent his life out in the wilderness 
He didn't dress in soft clothing as courtiers do. He just had on him camel hair shirt and a leathern girdle. He didn't eat great meals, wonderful repasts. He just ate locusts and wild honey. There he was, the prophet in the wilderness, preaching his fiery message. And you, listening to him, said, He hath a devil. He's mad. He's insane. You said, A man who lives like that and who spent his time away in the wilderness. He's a lunatic. He's a madman. You objected to that. And then uh, I have come, he says, and uh, I mix with publicans and sinners. And at first one would have thought, well, this would be the very thing to appeal to you because you objected to John because he segregated himself from mankind and he lived that uh, rigorous kind of life in his diet and in everything else. Now, I've come and I'm constantly mixing with people. I sit down and I take a meal with publicans and sinners. But you're not pleased with that either. You say, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. You said of John the Baptist, oh, he's too strict, he's going too far. You say of me, he's not going far enough. He's a gluttonous man, a wine-bibber. This man is not an ethical teacher at all. He says, you're like children sitting in the marketplace and playing. And they never seem to be satisfied. Sometimes someone suggests, well, now let's have a game of marriage and dancing. So they bring out the pipes and they play on the pipes and they say, come, let's dance, let's enjoy ourselves. But they wouldn't do it. Well, then somebody says, well, let's try playing uh, funerals. Let's, uh, let's put on mourning. We have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and you have not lamented. There's always some special reason. Whatever is offered is wrong. You see, thus the reasons that are given from time to time vary tremendously and more or less cancel one another right out. But the common result is, as I say, that whatever the reasons adduced and given, it is the fact that is important and it's the fact that remains that mankind confronted by the Son of God even when he came here in the flesh and dwelt amongst them and spoke to them as men never spake and worked his amazing miracles in Capernaum and these other cities, in spite of it all, they rejected him. They refused him, would have nothing to do with him, and gave their varying reasons for so doing. Now I say that that has been the practice and the custom of mankind ever since. But in different ages, it has had a different reason, and it has made a great deal of this reason, and it behoves us to consider these reasons. Well, now, I think most people will agree that one of the commonest reasons and one of the most popular reasons uh, given uh, for the rejection of the gospel today is one that is uh, very perfectly expressed in a phrase that was written by Robert Louis Stevenson. In one of his essays in Virginibus Puerisque, I think you'll find this, that he says, to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. Now, I say that that is the phrase, the intellectual attitude, 
which is characteristic of so many people today, and especially the more intellectual kind of person. It is in terms of that particular statement, to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. Now what do they mean by that? Well, what they mean is this. Their objection to the gospel is an objection to its certainty, an objection to its finality. It is an objection to the fact that the gospel says, if you believe this well, then you will have arrived and you will derive a full satisfaction. They object to the fact that the gospel is so definite, that it is categorical, that it is dogmatic, that it says, this is the way, this is the only way, but if you follow it, it will bring you to all that you need and infinitely more. Now, they object to the dogmatism, the definiteness, the certainty, and the assurance. Now, I could show you very easily that there have been other times when people have made the exact opposite objection. Indeed, there are some even today who do that. Because you always get these various types represented at any one particular point or in any particular sector of history. All the types are there. I'm dealing tonight with what I regard as a prevailing view and a very common one, and especially amongst the more intellectual type of person. Now, this is how they argue. They say definiteness and dogmatism are always the characteristics of ignorance. A man, of course, who's got a small brain, a poor intellect, he can only see one aspect of truth always, and he says that's the only one. So dogmatism and certainty, you see, are the characteristics of ignorance and of a small, cramped, confined mind. And they say that is the trouble with your gospel. Shuts out everything else. Condemns every other religion. Says Christianity and Christianity alone are right. You mustn't go after Buddhism and Mohammedanism and Confucianism and so on. This and this alone is right. There's only one person, it says, Jesus of Nazareth. You needn't consider anybody else. Ah, oh, say these people. That is so typical and so characteristic of that primitive, ignorant, closed kind of outlook and of mentality. Not only that, they say, such people who take up that position obviously have never realized what a great and a big thing truth is. Truth, they say, is many-sided. There are so many facets to truth. Reality of necessity there must be something large and complex and great. And they say, therefore, for anybody to be dogmatic and definite and certain is just to indicate that their minds are too small to see this vastness, this largeness. They say the very universe in which we live is mysterious. It's large. There are constellations that we haven't seen. There are billions of bodies there in that milky way, and so on and so forth. And they say, well, then if there is a God, how much infinitely larger he must be, and how infinitely larger must truth always be. And yet you Christians say, here it is, it's all in one book, it's all in one person, it's the only way. They say, surely that's just an indication 
that you've never realized the vastness of truth, the many-sided character of reality itself. They say you haven't realized as you should have done that the most one can hope to do while one is in this life and in this world is to catch an occasional glimpse here and there and be very grateful for it. But as for having truth itself and light and having say and being able to say, I have arrived, why they say it's unutterable nonsense, it's impossible. But they go further and they say this. They say they're rather sorry for people who are in that position. They say, dear me, what a little world do those Christian people live in. There they are, they think that they've arrived and that they've got all they want. Dear me, how sad it is to think that they know nothing about the great thrill, the excitement of the quest for truth and for reality. To travel, hopefully, is a very much better thing than to arrive. Oh, they say these Christian people, they've stopped thinking, they've stopped seeking. There they are, they confine themselves to the one book and the one person, the one creed, the one idea, and they know nothing about these great journeyings, these marvelous questings, the excitement, the thrill of the open mind and the journeying, rising with the dawn and traveling out for truth and for ultimate reality. Oh, they say, what a small, what a cramped, what a narrow kind of life and of existence. Well, there it is, you see. Stevenson, at the end of the last century, expressed it very perfectly, didn't he? To travel, hopefully, is a better thing than to arrive. The open road, the open mind, the quest. Come, they say, join us in this and come out of your cramped, confined, cabined little mentality and existence hemmed in by your Christian gospel. Now all this, of course, at first sight, Sounds very wonderful. But, but like so many of these modern cliches, and the cliches of many another age, the moment you stop to examine them and to look at them, you find that people who utter them and who believe them are guilty of a very tragic type of self-deception. How easy it is to live on phrases. How easy to get intoxicated by some great slogan. They sound so wonderful. Until you come to examine them and to dissect them and to analyze them. And to really ask them, well now what exactly are you saying? What exactly are you offering? What is your program? And you find that suddenly the whole thing evaporates as it were in your hands and you're left with nothing at all. Now, I want to try to show you this evening that this is particularly true of this modern attitude that objects to the dogmatism, the certainty, the definiteness of the Christian faith and of the Christian message. Here, you see, we have the contrasts. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can arrive, you can sit down and begin to enjoy. But on the other hand, to travel, hopefully, is a better thing than to arrive. Now then, let's look at this slogan. Let's look at this phrase. 
and consider it in the light of our Lord's definite appeal, his definite invitation, his definite offer, the dogmatism of all his statements. You see, he's so definite and dogmatic in all that he says. He says, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. He says, I've got it, I alone have got it, and if you come to me, you will have it. There it is. The two attitudes, you see, are in blank and open contradiction. Very well then, let's start with the human statement. To travel, hopefully, is, better, is a better thing than to arrive. Now, my first comment about this is this. I would ask you to notice on examination the inconsistency that this cliché reveals. What inconsistency, says someone? Well, first of all, I suggest to you that it is inconsistent intellectually. In this way. If to travel, hopefully, is a better thing than to arrive, well, then the question I ask is this, why travel at all? If you know before you start that the end of the journey is not going to be worthwhile, why start? Now that, I say, is a fair criticism. The slogan tells me that to travel, hopefully, is a better thing than to arrive. There's always something wrong about arriving. Well, then I say, why start? Why travel at all? Why not sit down and do nothing? And let me say this. There is much more to be said for the modern person who says, what's the use of anything? That, at any rate, I can understand in a sense. He's not fooling himself. But here is a man who deliberately goes out on a journey and at the same time tells you there's no point in journeying. Now I say that is to contradict oneself. Or look at it like this. How can I talk about traveling hopefully if I also say at the same time that the arrival is always disappointing? If I know that arriving is always going to be disappointing, well, where can I be hopeful as I'm journeying? If I already know the end, where does my hope come in? How can I be hopeful? I cannot be hopeful and hopeless at one and the same time. But that's, you see, the characteristic of many of these modern phrases. It sounds so marvelous that to travel hopefully is better than to arrive. But I say it makes nonsense of any traveling, of any journeying whatsoever. It reduces itself to intellectual nonsense. You can't say these two things at one and the same time. But it's not only inconsistent intellectually, it's actually inconsistent in practice. You see, we don't really believe this sort of thing in practice in our daily lives. It's the sort of thing we like to say when we're talking about God and about the soul and about religion. But in the ordinary affairs of life, we not only don't believe this, we'd be very annoyed indeed if it happened to be true. Now take today, for instance, 
They had a harvest thanksgiving service for the children this afternoon and probably hundreds of churches up and down the land are having a harvest thanksgiving service either today or last Sunday or next Sunday or on a weekday. Well, now take that. What does that remind us of? Well, it reminds us of the fact that uh, in the spring or perhaps in the winter or sometimes even in the previous autumn, a farmer goes out and he plows the land and he harrows it and he breaks it up and he may allow it to be exposed to the winter snow and uh, uh, the frost and the rain and the sunshine and then at a given point he goes and he breaks it up again and he sows his seed into it with drills. Why does he do that? Does he do it because it's a very exhilarating and exciting thing to be sowing? Does he do it because he says sowing is a very much better thing than reaping? Does he say, oh, I'm not interested in harvest? No, 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 of course, that's too narrow. You mustn't talk about ends. It's the sowing. That's the marvelous thing. It's the thrill and the excitement of plowing and harrowing and sowing. Don't talk to me about reaping. Does anybody believe that? Of course not. Is plowing and harrowing and sowing better than reaping and garnering your harvest and putting your seed into your barns and then milling it and turning it into flour and then kneading it and putting into it your yeast and making your bread and eating it? Is it better merely to start than to end? Of course not. Every man starts out because he wants to end. You see, in practice, we disavow this theory and we dislike it and we should be very annoyed if it happened to be true. Or let me give you another illustration. I wonder how many students in school or in colleges work on this principle. Do they say quite honestly that they're not at all interested in their examination results? Have they no end? Have they no objective? Are they just interested in the process of studying so that whatever degree they may get or however badly they may do in their finals, they say that's quite irrelevant. I was never interested in that sort of thing at all. What I was interested in was of just the excitement of the study and of the quest. No objective whatsoever. Of course not. It isn't that I'm detracting from the inherent value of studying and of scholarship. They can be of great value in and of themselves. But surely our primary reason is the objective. It puts me into a certain position. I arrive at knowledge. It will give me a certain profession. I'll be in a certain position in life and I'll be able to do certain things. I'm not merely interested in this dilettante attitude. I want to arrive somewhere. Or to give you a final illustration... Anyone who's ever known what it is to be in love will see what a futile statement this is. If you love a person, you want that person. And you're not merely interested in courtship. You're interested in the person. Nobody would say in that connection, to travel hopefully is better than to arrive. It's insulting to the object of your love, and you don't mean it. You want the object of your affection and of your love. You're not interested merely in the process. It's the person you want, and you're perfectly right. Isn't it, therefore, I say, rather tragic, that when you come to the highest and the greatest and the most vital thing of all, that mankind suddenly reverses all his own ideas and practices and talks thus glibly, 
and says to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. No, no, it's inconsistent intellectually, but let me hurry on. Have you ever noticed, I wonder, the pessimism and the despair that this attitude reveals? And this is the thing that really concerns me about it. What a terrible view to take of life. Here it is. To travel, hopefully, is a better thing than to arrive. Why? Well, for this reason. But when you do arrive, you're always disappointed. It's never as good as you thought it was. Ah, you wondered why you were so excited. Is this it after all? Well, now, here you see, we really are dealing with modern life, aren't we? This is the modern attitude of so many towards life. This cynicism, this despair, this unutterable hopelessness. You strive and you sweat, they say, and you work hard. You've gone after some glittering prize. And you said, if only I could get that, everything would be perfect. And you get it. And you already find that it's soiled in your hands. But that is the modern view, isn't it? That is why you see the joke that always goes down best when the comedian utters it is a joke against marriage. The joke about a young man who still looks forward to being married and to living a happy married life. Poor fellow. That's it, isn't it? No, no, there's nothing in it. It's always disappointing. And so mankind becomes cynical. But he doesn't realize this. He utters his cliche to travel hopefully. That's the thing, the thrill and the excitement. But what he's really saying is this. No journey, in a sense, is worthwhile because whenever you do arrive, your fruit has already started to putrefy. It's lost its bloom. You pick the flower and the rose, but it's already withering. My withered dreams. My withered dreams. That I'm suggesting to you is what is really confessed by this cliché. What such a person is really saying is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You see, the men who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes had traveled this way before. Robert Louis Stevenson had ever come into this world centuries before. He says something very similar. He's tried wisdom. Doesn't lead to satisfaction. So he tried pleasure. Went to the exact opposite. No, it seemed to give him a kind of kick for a while, but it soon went. He tried wealth and riches. He tried clothing. Built great buildings. He's tried the lot. He says, no, no, there's nothing in it. I've done them all. And it's nothing but rotting fruit. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. There's nothing worthy of one's endeavor and of attempt and striving in this world. When you get there, you're always disappointed. There you've been climbing up the mountain. You say, if only I could get to the top. What a marvelous view I'm going to get. There's that panorama. And you've been struggling and sweating and scrambling up on hands and knees until your hands and knees are bleeding. You say, the view from the top. And you get there and you see just an ordinary sight after all. 
Somebody persuaded you wrongly. They were imagining. They were not describing actualities. And you feel what a fool I've been. And you sit down and you're sorry for yourself that you've been such a fool. To travel hopefully is better than to arrive. For when you arrive there's nothing there as it were. What a terribly sad view to take of life. Is there anybody listening to me, I wonder, whose view of life is just that? Have you become cynical? Have you become hopeless? Do you take this despairing view of life? You know the sort of view taken of life by Thomas Hardy, the novelist, who seems to delight to use the phrase in taking the guilt off the gingerbread always, was anti-romantic because he says it isn't true. He says, I'm a realist, I'm going to paint life as it is. And there he paints it, and oh, what a wretched, miserable existence it is. But that's the prevailing view, you see. It's afraid of arriving, in a sense, because it says when you get there, there's nothing there. Well, let me go on to my next principle, which I put in this form. Have you noticed the admission that is made by this uh, cliché? What an admission. The admission is this. That man in and of himself will never arrive at satisfaction. That it doesn't matter how much he tries and travels and investigates and delves into the mysteries, he will never find satisfaction. Something's always eluding him. It's never quite what he thought it was. He cannot bring himself to it. And at the same time he is admitting and confessing that the world cannot give it him either. Now this is a tremendous admission. The world isn't aware of it because, you see, it emphasizes only one half of its own statement. It puts its emphasis on the traveling, on the journeying, and it says this is most thrilling and exciting. But when it completes its own statement, what it's really saying is this, I can never arrive at the place of my dreams and my imagination. There's always a fly in the ointment. There's always something that just spoils everything. Nothing is as I imagined it to be. I can't get there. And the world with all its wealth and knowledge cannot give it me. There is something that is cursing the whole of life. So that man, as he endeavors and tries and seeks and searches, never succeeds. But the trouble is, I say, that the world doesn't really examine its own phrases. It doesn't see the implication of its own resounding phrases. If only they'd stopped and analyzed it, and they'd see, there is the admission. Very well, then. And now we come to the point of crisis, the point of supreme importance. Because, you know, to arrive at that particular point is the exact point of introduction to the Christian message. No man, it seems to me, can be a Christian truly unless he has arrived at that particular point. He has come to the end of himself. He has come to the end of his tether. He has come to the end of the world. He has come to the end of all human endeavor. He says, I have tried, I have failed. I thought, it hasn't worked out. I have traveled, most hopefully, but ah, every time I've arrived, 
I found that my glittering prize has been something tawdry, mere tinsel. And I've been ashamed, and I've been disappointed, and I don't know where I am. Yes, there's the point at which you arrive. But now the next question is this. Which road are you going to take from there? So many today take this road. They say, what's the use of anything? Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What's the point of questing any longer when I know I'm going to be disappointed? I'll give up. I'll stop thinking. I'll use my brains no more. I'll give up my interest in culture. I'll drink. I'll eat. I'll be merry. I'll have a good, as good a time as I can. And again, you see, they fail to consider the end. For if they but applied their own cliché to that, they would find that even that leads to the same sort of end, and infinitely worse, because it leads to misery and more unhappiness and more depression and more wretchedness, and on and on they go. They've given up, they've given in. Very well, then, I say, this is the last point that I would make. The real trouble with those who say that it is a better thing to travel, hopefully, than to arrive. The real thing that they're displaying is their ignorance of what the gospel of Jesus Christ really has to give. That's the final trouble. They have come to this conclusion that in this life and in this world, Man is doomed to irremediable misery and wretchedness and disappointment. Do what he will, he will always come to that disappointing end. That's why it is a better thing to travel, hopefully, than to arrive. They say there's nothing else. There it is. We've come to that. And they end in cynicism and in despair. And that is simply because... They've never seen the message of this book. So what is this book about? Well, it's just this. This book is an account of an end which is amazing and glorious and wonderful. The whole message of this book is just to say this, that when a man arrives at what it has got to give, he will invariably say, the half has not been told me. He will be like the Queen of Sheba when she went to see the wealth of Solomon of old. She said, I heard about it. It was marvelous what was reported to me. But you know, having seen it, the half has not been told me. That is, I say, what all say who truly come to see the message of the Bible. What is this? Well, let me put it to you like this. The Bible starts by giving us an explanation of why we are always disappointed when we arrive. And what he tells us is this. That man is in that state and in that condition because he's in the wrong relationship to God. That God so made men that men really cannot be satisfied and happy until he is in the right relationship to God. Now, that is the fundamental postulate of the Bible. That's the thing on which it starts. And it's important to start at the very beginning. Man, by nature, by constitution, is meant for God. 
and he will never function truly until he is right there in that right correspondence and in that right alignment. And if he's not there, well, he can go and do whatever he likes, and he will always be disappointed. Now, that's a tremendous assertion. But it is the central assertion of the whole Bible as it is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Come unto me, ye that labor and are heavy laden. Who's that? Everybody. We all by nature are laboring and are heavy laden. You may start out in your youth in life light-hearted and light-footed. But my dear friend, the world is right when it says that you won't go on like that very long. The world in its realism is perfectly right. Up to that point, I'm in entire agreement with it. Where it's wrong is in talking about traveling, hopefully. The real fact is that man left to himself will live a life of labor. And problems and troubles will come and disappointments will gather round and about him. He'll set his heart on things and he won't get them. He'll have his ambitions and they'll be thwarted. He'll have certain views of himself and he'll paint his idealistic picture of himself. And he'll be confident for a while that he's going to get there. But as certainly as he's alive, he'll reach a, reach a point when he says, Where is it? Where is the vision and the dream? Where are the things? Your Wordsworths have gone through it all. They've lost something. Whether they worshipped nature or what it was, things are not as they were. They dreamt, but the dream hasn't become a reality. And they lose something. Something primeval, they say, has gone. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. And he loses the elasticity and the thrill. And he settles down into his middle-aged mediocrity and his hopeless old age. That's perfectly right. That is life. And alas, that is the tragedy of life in this world this evening. That is the condition of the vast majority of men and women. I can prove it to you. That is why they live on pleasure. They dare not spend their evenings with themselves. They must look away from self. At the television, cinema, anything. I'm not condemning these things. I say these are symptomatic of the fact that man says that when you arrive, you're always disappointed. It never is what you thought it was going to be. I tried, I failed. Well, let's get away from it. Let's try and make myself happy for a moment. Whether I drink or drug myself or whatever I do, they're running away, escapism. But you see, they don't realize that it's all because of this one thing. That they've wandered away from God, the center of their being, the source of their life. The only one where they really can find all that they need. Now then, that's the fundamental postulate of the Bible. Man is like this, he will be like this. Multiply your educational schemes. Give him everything you can. Make him a multimillionaire, and he'll still be miserable. There'll still be something he wants. His health or something will have gone. He'll never find satisfaction. There is no man perfectly satisfied. Every man who lives is born to die, says Dryden, and none can boast sincere felicity. There's no such thing. Well, now then, I say, there we are in agreement with the world, you see. We say all our efforts lead to nothing. 
right. I'm laden. I'm heavy laden. I'm laboring. I'm weary. I'm tired. I'm almost sinking down to the ground in cynicism and despair when suddenly I hear a voice. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is it possible? I've tried all the rest and it isn't possible. Is this going to be right? Well, I say go to him and try. He claims that he can give you final satisfaction, complete satisfaction. He says, anyone, he said to the woman of Samaria, anybody who drinks of that water that you're drawing from that well shall thirst again. But he that drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him as a well of water springing up into eternal life. He that cometh unto me shall never thirst. He that believeth on me shall never hunger. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is it true? I'm here to say it is. Here is the one place in life, the one person in the whole of human history that really brings us to an end that is infinitely more glorious than we'd ever imagined. The opposite of the world's cliche. What does he give you, ask someone? Well, I could go on for hours telling you. Let me just give you a summary. He gives intellectual rest and satisfaction. And he alone gives it. He said, I am the light of the world. If any man follow me, he shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What do you mean, sir, someone? I mean this. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ, as I've said, who really enables me to understand the cause of my misery and wretchedness and failure. Philosophy can't do it. For philosophy believes in me and believes in itself and believes in the world and in the goodness of men. And yet the facts deny it all. Here is one who says, you're quite right. You stay to yourself and your own power and trust the world and you'll continue in misery. Why? Well, because of your sin against God. He gives me a radical explanation. It fits my case. It fits the case of everybody else. He gives me an understanding of my problem and an explanation of my problem. Not only that, he enables me to understand the whole course of human history. I can see why the world hasn't improved throughout the centuries because of this sin that is in men. I can't understand it anywhere else, but here I do understand it. I see why there are wars and rumors of wars. And while these things are in men, while lust and passion is there, there'll be quarreling and jealousy and envy and all these things. But it's all due to this sin. And so whatever I may do, whatever others may do, it'll never satisfy me. There'll be this thing that'll spoil it all. This sin that is in me. Ah, then I say, what I want to know is this. How can I get rid of that? Is that possible? I've tried improving myself. I've made New Year's resolutions. I've gone to church. I've read my Bible. I've prayed. I've gone into a monastery. I've left the world. And still I'm a sinner. Evil thoughts are with me in my cell in the monastery. What can I do? 
And no one can tell me until I come to him again. And he tells me. He says, no one can. You can't. Nobody else can. I can. He looks at me and he tells me, I've come into the world to deal with that sin of yours. I came into the world to bear its guilt, its punishment. I died for it on the cross on Calvary's hill. I've taken it away. I can introduce you to God. I've come, I've been sent by God to reconcile you to God. There I see the hope. And he leads me to God. A knowledge of God. God not as some great tyrant inhabiting the distant heavens. But God as my father. God as one who knows me and is interested in me. And one who loves me. He leads me to that sort of knowledge. Is this satisfaction, says someone? Are you really claiming that you find intellectual satisfaction in the Bible and in Christ? My dear friend, I am. I suggest to you this evening, I say to the glory of God, that I know nothing more thrilling, more exciting, more exhilarating than to study the epistles of Paul. My mind is at full stretch, and even then I wish I had a thousand bigger minds. It's so vast, it's so glorious. There's such a complete scheme, such a profound explanation. I revel in it. I ask for nothing more. I simply want to understand it better and better. In Christ, and thus in his servants, I find, I say, a complete and entire intellectual rest and satisfaction. I have found here something that none of the books of the world can give me. There's always something further. Here I arrive at finality. But thank God it doesn't only deal with my mind. Come unto me, he says, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, I'll give you satisfaction, not only to your mind, but to your heart. Is there anything that can so move the heart as a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as to feel his presence near, as to know his love, the love of Jesus, what it is, none but his loved ones know. And in a world such as this is this evening, is there anything which is in any way comparable to this? To know that the eternal God, the Father, and God, the Son, and God, the eternal Spirit, are interested in me, interested in us one by one, watching us, caring over us, counting the very hairs of our head, so that whereas other people may trample on our affections and rob us of the things we want, here is one who has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. My dear friends, here is satisfaction for the heart. Here is an object of your love that will never disappoint you. Ah, we all disappoint one another. There is no one that can really satisfy us. The one you love most dearly, there's always something lacking. We're all sinners. But look into the face of the Son of God, and you'll find beauty without any blemish. You'll find love absolute and eternal. He will never fail you. He'll never disappoint you. He will grow and ever become more marvelous and more wonderful. Go to him.
Here is an end that is infinitely better than the journeying and the traveling. The half has not been told. Well, you know, this has been the testimony of all who have ever come to him and who have ever really known him. Read your New Testament. Read what these apostles have to say. Do they say that traveling is better than arriving? Do they say that they were happier when they were looking for salvation than after they had found it? Read their own words. And everywhere you will find that they cannot find words to express it. Go and ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, what do you mean? What are you doing as you go about the world preaching this gospel? He says, it's my great privilege to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, I'm just telling them something about the exceeding riches of his grace. What is his ambition? Well, he tells us, to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain, because it means being with Christ, which is far better. What's his ambition? It's this, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's his view. He's arrived, and having arrived, he says, I simply want more and more of it. I am satisfied, and yet I want more. The very satisfaction increases my appetite. I'm changed from glory into glory, and I'll go on until I'm with him permanently. And all the other apostles say exactly the same thing. And even though everything goes against them, even though they be persecuted and tried and robbed, this is what they say. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Perfect satisfaction. Needing nothing more. And it's true of all the others. Read of every case of conversion. Look at that Philippian jailer. There he was a desperate fellow. Miserable and happy on the point of committing suicide. Paul and Silas preached the gospel to him. This is the end of the story. And he believed God and was baptized, rejoicing with all his house. And the great message is, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. This is the theme of all who arrived at Christ. They write their hymns. How glad we are to sing them. Oh, happy day that fixed my choice on thee, my Savior and my God. He's fixed. He's done. The great transaction's done. He's arrived. He's no longer traveling. It's the arriving that's glorious. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. One tongue isn't enough. It's so glorious. He's arrived. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. There it is, says Charles Wesley. He's everything. He's the all and in all. Plenteous grace with thee is found. Grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound. Make me, keep me pure within. Thou of life, the fountain art. Freely let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart. 
rise to all eternity. You know, these men who've arrived at Christ have all agreed in telling us this. Then sooner that sooner than leave him, sooner than turn their backs on him and go back to the world, they would rather die. Thousands of them in the first century were given the choice. They were told this, if you continue saying that Jesus is Lord, you'll be put to death by the lions in the arena. On the other hand, if you say that Caesar is Lord, you can go back to the world and your home and your business and all you like. They chose death. Why? Well, it's what they found in him. Everything was worthless by the side of him. To travel, hopefully, is better than to arrive, not when you're arriving at Christ. Sooner death than to turn their backs upon him. Very well then, my friend, listen to his invitation. There he stands in spite of all you've been and all you've done and all your spurning of his vice divine. And he says, even now, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. What are you laboring for? You know the end is going to be disappointment. Why go on then? Why go on laboring and striving and trusting to an intellect and an understanding and human philosophies that must of necessity lead to failure? Why go on laboring and heavy laden? Come unto me, and I will give you rest, which just means this. Go home and go and speak quietly. To do it in this service, do it while we're singing the hymn, do it afterwards. Just say to him, I am laboring, I'm heavy laden, I'm miserable, I'm unhappy, I'm disillusioned, I'm becoming sour and cynical, I know I can't, the world can't, I come to thee, I confess it all, canst thou, I believe, help my unbelief, cast yourself upon his mercy, ask him to reveal himself to you by the Holy Spirit. And he will hear you. He will not refuse you. And he will give you rest. And then you will join me in saying something like this. O Christ, in thee my soul hath found and found in thee alone the peace, the joy I sought so long, the bliss till now unknown. I sighed for rest and happiness. I yearned for them, not thee. But while I passed my Savior by, his love laid hold on me. I tried the broken systems, Lord. But all the waters failed, and they always did. E'en as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Oh, how true. The pleasures lost, I sadly mourned, but never wept for thee, till grace the sightless eyes received, thy loveliness to see. Now, none but Christ can satisfy None other name for me, 
There's life. There's love and life and lasting joy. Lord Jesus, found in thee. Hear him. Listen to him. Go to him and find him and the lasting joy that he alone can give.